And uh, this morning, I'm going to return where we started last week. Uh, we didn't finish last week. We were talking about forgiveness from Luke chapter 17. So we're going to deal with the issue of forgiveness. And last week, we looked at the steps to forgiveness. And this week, we're going to look at excuses as to why we often don't forgive. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into Luke chapter 17. Father, again, we come to you and we thank you for the privilege of being able to sing praises to your name. We, we truly do have reasons to rejoice beyond um, anyone, any, anything anyone can imagine because you have redeemed us. You have paid the price. You have provided atonement for our sins, and we are grateful for that. We're grateful for Christ and for his perfect life. And God in the flesh came down and lived a perfect life and didn't have to die and allowed himself to be crucified as a substitute for those of us who have repented and turned and trusted in you. And so we rejoice in that thought. And Father, as you have forgiven us, help us to be forgivers as well. Teach us, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 17 is where we're at. I'm going to begin reading verse 3 all the way down to verse 10. Follow along with me in your Bibles if you have it with you. Have it open, open to Luke 17. Verse 3 says this, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would, be, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So last week we talked about three steps to forgiveness, and we only got through the first two. The first one was to confront, and we see that in Luke 17, 3. Be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him. And we talked about the fact that this word for rebuke is a softer word, not the harshest word you could use. It's really like confronting. It's cautiously, tentatively, with a desire to bring about a change. And so uh, it's important. That's step number one. Oftentimes we do other things besides step number one. Uh, Jay Adams in his book, um, uh, From Forgiven to Forgiving says the one with the hurt toes goes. Notice that the responsibility lies on the person who has been offended. He gives a silly illustration. If you were in church and somebody stepped on your toes and stuck their nose up at you, what would be your first response? Would it be to go and uh, confront them lovingly, cautiously, tentatively with a desire to bring about a change? Uh, or would it be uh, to complain or Tell the person next to you, you won't believe what they just did to me, or, um, or, or to be angry about it, or to stew, or to become bitter. Um, and uh, it, <laughs> the solution, he says, if you go to them, you might find out that they said, oh, I'm so sorry, I had a bloody nose, and I was trying to get out of church quickly, and I accidentally stepped on your, your foot and put my nose up in the air, and I didn't, I didn't actually intend to do any of that, please forgive me. And boom, it's reconciled. It's, it's good. It's easy to, easy to forgive when it was unintentional, right? And when there's a somewhat plausible explanation. Um, so, but confronting is the first step. Uh, the second step is to forgive. And we defined forgiveness as um, the essence of forgiveness is covering over. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. And those are parallel statements. And so we have this idea of covering over the sin, separating it. For, to forgive means to separate. Uh, Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west. And so we have this idea of, uh, of, of covering it over. Sometimes forgiveness can be transactional. And in Luke 17, 3, it most certainly is because it says, 
if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. So there's this idea that you've confronted him, he's repented, and now you grant forgiveness. You cover it over, you bury it, you say, I bury these bones and I promise not to dig them up to make you smell them ever again. That's just a graphic way of saying, I forgive you. I promise I will not bring this up again. Forgiveness, however, sometimes can be unilateral and unconditional. Um, and, and that is you skip step one and you go straight to step, step two. And, in, and you, you forgive a person. You say, uh, I, I, um, uh, I, I'm deciding not to confront them. Uh, I'm just going to overlook this and I'm going to uh, cover it over with love. And sometimes you'll find uh, in different books on forgiveness uh, that authors disagree on whether forgiveness can be unconditional. Um, And there are some authors, very good authors, who say that it's always transactional. But what they do is they define uh, covering over with love as a separate act other than forgiveness. Um, I don't see it that way. I see them as parallel statements, Psalm 32. And so I, I think that sometimes it is transactional. Sometimes forgiveness can be unilateral and unconditional. And the, the key is, we talked about last week, is what's best for the other person? Is it best for them for me to confront them on this? Especially if it's something they might do again to someone else, or if, it's, if, it's, if they don't see it and you're coming in love. And, and, um, and uh, otherwise... Uh, you know, if you, but if you say to yourself, well, actually, I've already spoken to them about this. This could actually, um, uh, in fact, I just spoke to them about this and maybe they just forgot and I don't want to be petty and this is a small thing. I'm going to try and overlook this with love and just forgive them unilaterally and unconditionally. So step number one is confront. Step number two is forgive. And before we get to step number three, uh, I think we need to define our terms once again. Because uh, uh, last week we started with some definitions. There are five key terms, and I do think that it's important for us to define them well. Because uh, if we sometimes people use all these terms and they just put them under the umbrella of forgiveness, and I think they're distinct terms. So the first term is harboring bitterness. It is always wrong to harbor bitterness. This word bitterness is a fascinating word. It's originally used to describe the taste that somebody has in their mouth after eating something very sour. But it quickly became used as a word to describe the emotion someone has in their heart when they think of someone who has wronged them. Because the expression that is on a one-year-old's face when it bites into a lemon is the same expression that is on the face of a person who is harboring bitterness against someone else. And so they use that same term to, tr- to describe both an emotion and an actual literal taste. Um, and so uh, harboring bitterness is something that we, we just, we just are, are not to do. Ephesians 4 speaks about this, and uh, it's, it's always sin. It's dangerous, in fact. Harboring bitterness uh, leads to, it, it, it corrupts, and it spreads, and it's contagious, and it kills. And so... Uh, it's always wrong to harbor bitterness. Um, the, the next step we said, or the next term, would be a willingness to forgive. And believers should always be willing to forgive. Um, in fact, in, in Psalm 86, 5, it says that God is ready to forgive, and we're to forgive according to Ephesians 4, like God forgives. And so uh, have a willingness to forgive, being ready to forgive, and having a heart that would, as soon as the person repents, uh, if you confront them, you are going to grant forgiveness quickly. And oftentimes, uh, I encourage people, including myself, that even if the person doesn't confess as severely as you hoped they would, even if they just give you some sort of olive branch, just sort of like, well, you know, and, and you don't want them to discount it completely. Well, forgive me if I've done anything wrong, right? That's that's a conditional clause there, and you're breaking, you're parsing the grammar, and you're saying, well, you said if I did anything wrong, and I'm trying to tell you that you did do something wrong, and did you, do you recognize that? And so, so you, yeah, the grammar is important, but at some point, if you, you just have to try and, um, uh, you know, and you, you might say, so, so you do recognize that you wronged me, and 
You know, forgiveness itself, using that term is a good term to use because it actually uh, admits guilt. I encourage everyone to use biblical terms when seeking reconciliation and restoration because uh, worldly terms don't cut it. To say, I'm sorry, um, doesn't necessarily admit guilt. But when you say, please forgive me, not only are you admitting that you transgressed, but you are also asking for that transaction to take place where you are asking them to grant you forgiveness. Now, there is, so the first term was harboring bitterness, always wrong. The second one is granting uh, forgiveness, which is, uh, sorry, willingness to forgive, which is always important, always essential. And then the third term is, is anger. And anger can be expressed uh, righteously or unrighteously, but um, for, as far as I'm concerned, I, don't, I haven't experienced complete unrighteous anger. Um, I, I think all of my anger that I experience as I look back on it has been tainted with selfish anger, with unjust anger. And um, so our, our Lord speaks about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, if you're angry with your brother unjustly, you've committed murder in your heart. And the same sin that's in the heart of the person who pulls the trigger is in your heart when you are angry with somebody uh, unjustly. And though different sins have different severity of consequences, just recognize that it is a very serious sin that is in your heart when you are angry. It is actually a sin of not trusting God. Because if God is going to seize everything and cares about everything and will make all things right someday, and you feel like you need to somehow express unrighteous anger towards somebody, you're not trusting God that he will take care of it. And so when we are uh, righteous anger, if, if there's anything close to it, it would be when you are, a, when you are angry because of something that is, not, uh, that is blasphemous against God or not glorifying God. So, for example, if you were to go to a, a worship service where um, the message is very flippant and unrespectful or where um, the music is, is, is fleshly and worldly and should have nothing to do with exalting the name of Christ, and you start to get angry because, not because you're offended, but because you recognize this offends God. That would be righteous anger. When somebody cuts you off on the freeway, you're not thinking to yourself, ah, they just offended a holy God, right? The first thing you're thinking is me. This is my lane. This is where I am. This, stay in your lane, right? This is, this is, this is and I, 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 I didn't signal this morning and almost cut somebody off. But anyways, uh, but um, I was trying to teach them about forgiveness. But uh, uh so the, the thing is, is that when, you, uh, when, when you're angry, when that, it, most often you can look back to yourself and say, yeah, this was me. It was a violation of my rights and what I deserve. And somebody who sees things from a biblical perspective knows that um, what I deserve is eternity in hell because I'm a sinner and I've sinned against the holy God who will not tolerate sin, will not be in the presence of sin because he is holy and I am unholy. And therefore, the fact that I woke up this morning and have breath in my lungs is only by God's grace and is far better than I deserve. And any treatment I have from anybody is far better than what I truly deserve. Each day is a gift of God. We live it by grace. And so therefore, I should not be angry unjustly, ever. So we've defined uh, harboring bitterness. We've defined um, this, this idea of being willing to forgive. And then the third one is um, no anger, which uh, is going to be sin if it's unrighteous, which almost certainly is going to be unrighteous when we express it. And then the fourth term is actually the granting of forgiveness, the granting of forgiveness. And this, you have to break this into two sections if you're going to divide the term up. It has to be uh, a transactional granting of forgiveness and then covering over with love. I put it all under one topic. Some people would make it two separate terms, but I think it's, uh, there are times where the term is used to describe um, uh, forgiving um, 
uh, unilaterally and unconditionally in Scripture. And so I, I, just, I just can't take the term and make it, it's not as clear to me. Um, and so um, uh, the granting of forgiveness is actually that, that burying it, that concealing it, that separating it. The word uh, in the New Testament used for forgive literally means to separate. And so I'm so glad that God used uh, as far as the east is from the west because we know how far it is from the north to the south. And if you go you know, uh, one direction around the world, you'll be headed north, south, north, south. But if you go the other direction, you start going east, you'll never be going west. And, and, but the idea here is that just as far as you can possibly remove it from you. Um, as, as, as God promised in Isaiah uh, to, to, to Israel, I, have, I will remember your sins no more. And I think that that is um, a good definition of forgiveness is active, actively choosing not to remember someone's offenses against you. So what that looks like is um, when you... Uh, when somebody like uh, maybe your wife, uh, uh, you, you guys have a little argument, you both reconcile, you ask for forgiveness, you grant forgiveness to your spouse, and the next morning, and, and what you're saying is, I will not bring this up in a way I will actively choose not to remember. It's different than forgetting. Forgetting is passive. Like, uh, where are my glasses? And, and uh, has anybody seen my cell phone? And, you know, we, we forget where we, you know, where we put things, but God does not forget. He does not passively forget. He's not like, oh yeah, I forgot that you sinned against me. He's perfect. He's all-knowing. And um, so when you think about God and his, his omniscience and his omnipotence and, and, and all of his attributes, he doesn't, he doesn't somehow just forget. And we don't easily forget. When somebody really hurts us, we remember it for a long time. And sometimes when you grant forgiveness and the next morning you wake up and the first thought that goes in your mind is, grr, right? I should be angry at that person because of what they said or what they did, grr, right? Um, that's when you, your second thought should be, oh, wait a minute, I granted forgiveness. I promised not to remember that and bring it up to the person again. And here I am dwelling on it, remembering it. Father God, please help me now at this very moment to bury this issue once again. And please forgive me for allowing my mind to meditate on it and dwell on it because I know this is not true forgiveness. Okay, so that's forgiveness. That's the granting of forgiveness, which is different than a willingness to forgive. Uh, I asked the question last week, is it ever right to withhold forgiveness from someone? And the answer is yes. In Matthew 18, if the person, in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, if the person does not repent, then you go with one or two others. And you don't just say, well, I forgive you. And so in love, you're, you're, you're willing to forgive because you have that willingness to forgive, but you're not granting the forgiveness. The final definition, which I think is also essential, is reconciliation. Reconciliation. And to reconcile literally means to exchange. The word means to exchange. And so we are to exchange a bad relationship for a good relationship. Um, That's what reconciliation is. It's different than restoration. Restoration demands that you had a good relationship to begin with, it turned bad, and then you're restored to how it was before. Reconciliation does more than restoration in the sense that reconciliation doesn't demand that you ever had a good relationship. You could have started out with a bad relationship. But when you are reconciled, you exchange the bad relationship for a good relationship. And though it may be different, it should be as good or better than the previous time, than it ever has been before. Okay? And so we can talk more about reconciliation uh, during our question and answer time if you you want to ask questions about that term. Um, But... um, the goal, really, in, in, in a severed relationship is that reconciliation. And if you have reconciliation, then forgiveness has been granted, and there is no anger, and the person was willing to forgive, and there also is no harboring of bitterness. So uh, once you have the reconciliation, everything else lines up in suit.
The reason why I define them with those five different terms is because I think some people use the term forgiveness and they think that encompasses all of them. And it doesn't necessarily encompass all of them. All right, so that's all review. That's just bringing us up up to speed. I wish I would have done it that quickly last week, but I didn't. But here we go. So now, um, step number one is what? Confront. Step number two is? forgive. Step number three is repeat steps one and two as often as necessary. Okay, take a look at Luke 17 verse four. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Okay. So, I mean, think about this. Uh, You're in a dorm room. You get up, you make your bed, you you, you know, everything's neat and tidy. Your roommate's bed is a mess. All right. You come back your roommate is taking a nap in your bed, all right? Drool on the pillow, and you say, hey, what are you doing? And they say, oh, I'm sorry, I was so tired, and, and, uh, and you know, I had too much stuff on my bed. I, I didn't have a place to sleep, so yours looks so nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but this really offends me. Oh, please forgive me. Okay, all right. So, so then... Uh, uh, the next day you come home in the afternoon from your two o'clock class and there he is again in your bed, right? And you've forgiven him. So this means you can't say to him again, uh, hey, this is the second day in a row because you're not remembering, right? So you need to approach it with the same sensitivity and love that you should have the first day. Hey, Rumi, I'm coming to you in love because you're in my bed. I, I don't know if you realize this, and this, this greatly offends me because I, I just cleaned the sheets from yesterday and put them on, and it cost me $8.25 in the, in the laundromat, which, I mean, the prices really have gone up, haven't they? But anyway, so... Um, uh, anyway, so... Now you're asking for restitution. No, so um, um, what my point is that, uh, you know, if you look at Matthew 18, where uh, Peter first confronts our Lord uh, and says, up to how many times shall we forgive? Up to seven times. I think he was being very generous there because... Um, there was a common rabbinical teaching in antiquity which said that you only had to forgive somebody three times. It was actually a misinterpretation of Amos chapter 1 where God brought down condemnation on certain nations for uh, after the third time of them doing the same thing. And so the rabbis thought, well, if God only waits three times, we only have to wait three times. And so, but Peter, being so generous, he says... Uh, up to seven times, twice as much as the Pharisees, and then one? Is that how much? And, and our Lord says, I tell you, not seven, but what? Seven times 70, which is 490. That's right, yeah. But according to, uh, did everybody get that math right? Yeah, so um, according to 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. That is, love keeps no ledger of offenses. It's really hard to count to 490 when you're not keeping a record. The Lord's point was not 490 specific times. The Lord's point was as often as it happens. Now, I was teaching on this passage, Luke 17, 4, one time, and afterwards a lady came up to me and she, with tears kind of dwelling upon her eyes, and she says to me, suppose a husband beats his spouse and then repents and is forgiven and then does it again and again and again up to how many times should I forgive him? So that's, this, is, this is a little bit different than just your roommate you know, sleeping in your bed, right? This is, this is, this is where it gets really tough. Um, and f- to this lady, I was able to say, because we live in a country where it is against the law to 
physically abuse someone else, then true repentance, there's such a thing as false repentance, but true repentance always repents before all offended parties. And therefore, whenever I counsel a case where there is abuse, I encourage the abuser to go and report themselves to the police. To go to the police immediately, as soon as possible, fill out a police report against yourself because you're, it's one thing to confess a crime to your wife, but when you've committed it against the state and it's a serious offense like this, you need to um, con confess it before the state as well. And in fact, there are many people in our society who would be required to report you as well. It's better for you if you go and confess it yourself, fill out a police report, and if this ever happens again, uh, and you're not willing to go back down to the police, we're going to be the first ones down there filing another report on your record because breaking... So, so, so this, is, this is one of the duties of the state is to care for the people, and so we, that's why we have these laws. And so that is, that is one thing because... There, there is some, something uh, where you can have a false sense of remorse or even sorrow. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 7, um, we see godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7, it says... Um, Verse 8, <clears throat> what's happened here is, is Paul has written them a, a letter called the Sorrowful Letter. We don't have it, but we, we know that it grieved them very much and that they re repented because of it, and so he was rejoicing in that. He says in verse 8 of um, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, for, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now notice that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. So there's genuine repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you may not suffer loss in anything for us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation." but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so uh, verse 11 says, Behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Um, so there's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow might feel bad, might look like godly sorrow, and yet it's not genuine sorrow over sin. It might be sorrow over being caught or sorrow that you think you will never overcome that sin or sorrow, you know, but it's not genuine sorrow. And so um, uh, there is something between godly sorrow or difference, a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, between true repentance and false repentance. And true repentance will repent before all offended parties. So, but this is a, a big responsibility of a believer then to actually grant forgiveness, separate the issue, actively choose to not remember it uh, or not to remember it. And then we, so we have this, this real um, challenge for believers. But this is what our Lord lays out, three steps to forgiveness. I'm going to talk about excuses that we have sometimes when we say that we're not forgiving and we should be forgiving because um, that's also in our passage. But before I do, any questions about anything I've said about these steps to forgiveness? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, when there's a legal, physical abuse, but what about like verbal abuse that's very offensive and, and so forth, right? So there is, I, I think that uh, that would get into a situation uh, where 
um, you, may, you, you would probably need counsel to help you walk through this thing. And the reality is, is that sometimes it's clear when the repentance is false. And to the point where elders sometimes will discipline somebody who says they repent, but it's clear that it's not genuine repentance. And the elders do that as an act of discipline to help um, bring the person into a right relationship with God. But um, when it comes to the, the difficult part is where you're not sure, you're not sure whether they're genuinely repentant or not. And the scripture teaches us that we are to um, give the benefit of the doubt. It says that, in, in, again, in, in um, 1 Corinthians 13, where it tells us that love believes all things. And part of believing all things is not being gullible, but it is, it is believing the best that you possibly can believe. And sometimes an offended party is blind to that, which is why they need help discerning and having somebody walk through that with them. Um, and this, this really leads us to our first excuse, I think. The first excuse that we have as to why people don't forgive is they say things like, well, he's not sincere. If he were sincere, then I would forgive him. But he's not sincere. Or how about this one? Have you heard this one? Uh, if you were truly sorry, you wouldn't have done it in the first place. Right? I don't know how to respond to that one. That's a little bit difficult because I guess the way to respond is just to say, well, I am truly sorry, and I did do it. So now what's the procedure? Right? Because you have to, you have, at some point, you can't just go back in time and just discount everything and say you would have never done it. Well, and, 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 and I think that that is, that is a real problem on... If, if that's a believer telling you that, um, you really, you really can't um, uh, have that attitude. You you can't be involved in any counseling at all if your attitude is, oh, I'm shocked, I'm astonished that you would do such a thing. That's it's impossible to help someone biblically, and to look down upon their sin as if they are worse than you. Just think about it. You're aware of all your sin, and you've sinned against a holy God. His atonement for you is the motivation for you to do everything that you do because he has wiped the slate clean. And no one can sin against you as much as you've sinned against God. So uh, this is why Jonathan Edwards in his resolutions, resolution number eight, said this, resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And if I had committed, as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Edwards, when he wrote his 70 resolutions, number eight for him was, I will always, I will never allow the, 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 the thought or the knowledge of somebody else's sin or failings to produce nothing but shame in my own sin and my own failings. This is a key. Because if you're stuck and hung up on how could they have done such a thing, you don't see the depravity of your own heart. As John Calvin said, there's not a man who knows the hundredth part of his own sin. So even what you see is the tip of the iceberg. And, and you, you, if you develop this holier-than-thou attitude, it will not enable you to get over the hurdles that are keeping you from forgiving. And this idea that uh, this person doesn't seem sincere, 
Take a look at verse 3. Um, it's, sorry, verse 4 again. And if he sins against you seven times a day, returning to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The word saying is there in the original, and it changes everything. Now, again, it's not a magic word. It's, it's not like abracadabra. It's not like, oh, he said the word, I have to forgive him. Because he can say it in a way in which you know he's not sincere. You go to your roommate, hey, I noticed you had a good nap today in my bed, right? And your roommate said, okay, all right, all right, let's do this. Let's get over with. Are you ready? I repent. There. I said it. Okay. Now, what are you going to do? You're going to grant forgiveness to me, right? Because we're going to go through this passage again, right? So I said it. Okay. Now, it's obvious by everything, the way he's saying it, he's not really sincere. It's a false repentance. It's clear. It's obvious. And if it's not obvious to him, you just need to bring one other person with you to say, wait a minute, what did you say? How did you say that? Do you think that's repentance? Is that how you approach God? So, um, again, we're talking about fellow believers interacting here. And so when, when you have this idea that someone is... Uh, now, if they say, listen, uh, uh, yeah, I, I wronged you. I repent. Please forgive me. And you're not sure whether or not they are sincere or not. The word saying is in there because I believe that our Lord was calling his disciples to grant a kind of forgiveness that realizes your main responsibility is not to judge the sincerity of somebody else's heart. Now, if it's clear that it's false sincerity, that's, that's different. But if it's unclear to you, be gracious, be forgiving. Do not harbor bitterness, right? This is the kind of forgiveness we're to have. So, step, so excuse number one is they don't seem sincere, but our Lord kind of debunks that by using the word saying in verse four. The second excuse that we often have when we don't forgive is, well, I don't have the right kind of faith. And Pastor Brian, this might be fine for you, and you know, and I'm sure Anita's really grateful for you because you're so forgiving, right? You know, uh, actually, it's the other way around. But um, so, but you know, but that's just not me. I'm just not there yet. I haven't grown enough. I think the disciples were thinking something along those lines because they said in verse five, the apostles said to the Lord, "Increase our faith." Notice they didn't say, "Give us faith." They said, give us more faith. And our Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would be saved to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Well, what is uh, mustard seed faith? Mustard seed faith is, mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds used in that time, but it grew into a tree that could be up to 11 feet tall, one that birds of the air could, air could come and, 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 and rest in. And so... Uh, it did way more than people thought it could. And that's the kind of faith that believers have. Believers have a kind of faith that does much more than you think is possible. And so our Lord is saying, it's not the amount of faith that you have. Is it the right kind of faith that you have? And you said, increase our faith, not give us faith. So you have faith. So you have what it takes. So this is not a matter of uh, do you have enough faith or it's do you have the right kind of faith versus five and six? This is what our Lord was teaching. Excuse number one, they're not sincere. Excuse number two, I don't have the right kind of faith. The Lord deals with that. Excuse number three, I think is probably the most common, and that is I don't feel like doing it. I know I should. I know it's the right thing. I just don't feel like forgiving. After all, wouldn't I be a hypocrite if I said I forgive you and in my heart I didn't feel like forgiving you? 
I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm not one of those Christian hypocrites. I'm, I'm going to, I got to say it as it is. I'm just going to, I'm going to be frank here. I don't know who Frank is, but anyway, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to be as, as, as blunt as possible. This is how I feel. I can't help myself. All right. And so, uh, first of all, let's just talk about hypocrisy. It's not hypocrisy to do something you don't feel like doing, right? I got out of bed this morning. I didn't feel like getting out of bed this morning, but if I, but that doesn't make, it make me a hypocrite because I did it, all right? If I told you, hey, I love getting out of bed, crack of dawn, it's the greatest thing, I just, birds, and oh man, it's wonderful, and then my kids heard me say that, they'd go, dad, um, you're a hypocrite, so I, I don't think that's really true, right? So you'd be like, where's the coffee, right? So, um, but when you think about, um, uh, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not doing things you don't feel like doing. Hypocrisy is saying one thing when the reality is something else. Uh, when you saying that you love doing something or, or you hate doing something when the opposite is really true. Um, and the Lord tells this story, which seems unrelated at the beginning, but I think when we see it in its context here, verse 7, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you may eat and drink? Or does he does not thank the slave because he does the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, first of all, you need to read this within the first century slave context. We're not trying to impose a 17th century uh, colonialism, uh, colonial slavery uh, uh, picture in your mind upon the text. But the Lord is using a common, um, uh, whether the person had uh, agreed to be a, a slave for a period of years or whether they had given lifelong or whether they were from a nation that was captured and they now were doing a slave's job. But a common slave's job at that time was to work in the field and then prepare the meal. And that was what expect, and then afterwards they can clean up and leave. That was what was expected with the job. And so if you, for example, were struggling and you went to someone and said, hey, I would like to work for you. Uh, Would you take me on as a slave? Uh, I'll do it for a period of X amount of years. This might be your job, okay? And so uh, the reason that the the owner of the slave or the master of the slave doesn't doesn't, uh, actually... Um, uh, thank the person is not because the master's ungrateful, but it's because the slave hasn't done anything out of the ordinary. They've only done what they were supposed to do. It, it, when, I, when I teach a class at the seminary and I have a, a syllabus at the very beginning and a, and a student comes up and says, this is my assignment, right? And they hand it in on the due date. I don't say, oh, oh, oh thank you. This is so thoughtful of you. You actually, you did this for me? This is, this is wonderful. Thank you. Thank, thank, your mother must be proud, right? <laughs> so, because they've just done what's expected. They haven't gone above, and that's the picture here. And so, our Lord relates that to someone who forgives and he closes with these words, verse 10, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And what is he just commanded in verse three? Forgive him. Forgive. We are expected to be forgivers. And so these excuses that we come up with sometimes of, um, you know, uh, I don't, I, I'm not sure if they're sincere. It's not really your job to judge sincerity. It's your job to forgive. Secondly, uh, I don't have enough faith for this. If you have the right kind of faith, you have enough faith. Thirdly, uh, I don't feel like it. Our Lord says, this is what you're called to. This is part of your calling. This is part of your duty. This is what we do as Christians because God in Christ has done so much for you you naturally should be motivated to do it for others. So we have about six minutes left. Uh, questions? Yes. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, how do you forgive someone who's dead, uh, especially when you're reminded, even on a daily basis, of an offense that they had committed to you prior to them departing? So I think that a big part of that is this idea that, uh, first of all, it, it depends on how you define forgiveness. If, it's, if, if you see forgiveness as only transactional, it's impossible for you to forgive. Um, but you can cover it over with love. And so that part of forgiveness, I think, is possible. And that, this idea of saying, saying Lord, um, I, you can certainly start with, I don't want to harbor any bitterness against this person. And I feel like this bitterness is welling up inside me. Help me to see that. And part of that, I think, is getting to the place where, where you, 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 you're, like, you want to study something. You know, Jerry Bridges' book on trusting God. Um, would be a good a book, good book to read, and just basically saying, I need to 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 commit this to you, to roll this off onto you, to let you take this. Um, uh, you know, um, in First uh, Peter chapter two, it says, it says uh, it has examples of submission. And in um, verse 21, it says, for you have been called for this purpose. And if you look at the context of 1 Peter 2.21, it says, you've been called for this purpose. This purpose is to be treated unjustly. So part of being a Christian is being called to have been, to, to be treated unjustly by others. So if you, that's part of it. I don't know if they told you that when, when they said, hey, do you want to give your life to Christ because you're going to get eternity in heaven and in this life you'll be entreated unjustly by others? You're like, wait a minute, unjustly? Yes, you can, that's part of your calling because the way of the cross is to receive unjust treatment and respond as Christ did. That's what we're called to do. And so this would be a key passage to understand and, and apply. It says, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example to follow in his steps. And so this is where, the, this is where believers become believers and you start believing, Lord, you've called me to be treated unjustly. I was treated unjustly. Thank you for bringing that into my life. I, 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 gratitude has got to be a part of this, seeing God's hand in this. And also thinking of uh, Romans 8.18 which says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time will not, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And as much as you've suffered, you will not get to heaven and say, whew, that was tough, but I guess it's worth it. It'll be so great for you that none of your suffering will compare to it. And believing that helps you to get through this now. And it's not easy and it could be a daily struggle, but those passages will, will help. Yes? Oh, yeah. Is it ever okay to withhold forgiveness? Yeah. So um, when I say, is it ever okay to withhold forgiveness, what I mean is it's, it's not ever okay to not be willing to forgive. But when you go to someone, like Matthew 18, 15 says, uh, if your brother sins against you, go to him just between the two of you that you might win him over, right? And you go to him, you say, listen, Hey, you 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 stepped on my foot. I don't know if you realize you did this, but but you know it really hurt. And uh, I'm just coming to you because I don't want you to step on other people's feet. I notice you have rather large feet, and I think this could be a problem for you. And so you really come to them genuinely wanting to help them to win them over, right? Matthew eighteen fifteen, and and then they look at you and they say, "Well, listen, I can walk wherever I want, and if your feet happen to be under mine, it, it's no big deal. Get over it." All right? Now, you don't say, well, I forgive you. Right? Because they look at you and say, for what? I did nothing wrong. You, you, it's all in your mind. Right? So then, 
Matthew 18 says, you go and get one or two other witnesses to come with you. So you go to someone and say, listen, I'm, I don't want to tell you what's going on here, but I just, I, I had a conversation with somebody. It didn't go well. We're obviously missing each other. I just want you to listen and tell me if I'm wrong, right? And so uh, eventually you go back to this person and say, listen, I know we had a conversation about this already. I've asked our good friend, Leroy, to come along with us to just listen and, um, and, and uh, try and help us because I think we're missing each other. But do you realize that you, you broke my toe, you know, and it, I'm still struggling with it and, you know, and, 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 that, and that you don't seem, you know, and, and then let us, so you're not granting forgiveness. So that's why I say it's confusing because we've got to separate the granting of forgiveness with the being willing. You're going with an attitude willing to forgive, which you always must do, but you're not going to grant it if the person is not repentant when, you, when you're looking for transactional forgiveness. <laughs> If the person is an unbeliever, um, then you're going to be evangelistic. And this would be a good uh, passage for us to close on. Um, and that's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, um, it says in verse 18, I'll start in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ and reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation that you have as a believer is to preach the gospel that Christ reconciles sinners to himself. Now, you may do that by allowing yourself to be wronged and having an attitude that's different than the world, trusting in him, trusting in Christ. And so the principles of Matthew 18 don't work too far down the road for unbelievers because some, you're not going to take it to the church because they're not even in the church, right? But, but, um, but at some point, you're going to have to say, Lord, I commit this to you. You see it. I'm going to rest in the fact that you will make all things right. Help me to have the same attitude as Christ did. If there's anybody on the face of this planet throughout all of history who experienced injustice, is it not Jesus Christ? And 1 Peter 2 says he's our example. We're to follow him. He, he was reviled, but he did not revile in return. There's something in all of our nature that's scary, and that is we want to stick it back to the person worse and they stuck it to us. And that is not Christ. And it's not part of our calling. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again for this time. These are challenging passages, and we're grateful, Lord, for the fact that you know and that you care. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do what's expected of us, and that's to be forgiving. And that we would always have that willingness to forgive and give us the strength and boldness to confront when need, need be and the fortitude to actually overlook sin when we can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.